Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 6, 2010, and my guest is Paul Gregory of the University of Houston and a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He is the author of Politics, Murder, and Love in Stalin's Kremlin. Paul, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you, Ross. Your book is the story of a somewhat obscure figure of history, but turns out to be a rather fascinating person who had a rather fascinating life, Nikolai Bukharin. The book is about his relationship with Stalin and his wife, Bukharin's wife, Anna Lorena. Let's start by talking about who was Nikolai Bukharin, who is fairly forgotten in today's world, but during his lifetime uh, was a very prominent man. Uh, Nikolai Bukharin was the youngest of the Bolshevik founders. In my view, he was not an obscure figure because I've been acquainted with his work for over 45 years. He was perhaps the only trained economist among the Bolshevik founders. He studied economics during his exile in Germany and attended lectures of the uh, great Austrians, including uh, Böhm Bawerk, So um, I've always known of Bukharin, and uh, Bukharin uh, is a popular figure uh, in socialist circles because many claim that had he won this power struggle, the Soviet Union would have been quite different, a humane form of socialism would have emerged, and the world today would be... uh, completely different from what it is. So when he was, you talk about his exile, this is pre-revolution. This is what period, roughly? Uh, he went into exile around 1911. He returned after he got word of the February uh, revolution. He returned by way of Asia. In 1917 or so? Uh, yes. Uh, Trotsky returned by way of Europe, Trotsky was arrested and arrived rather late. Bukharin's choice of the return through Asia proved to be a good one because he arrived back in Moscow with only minor delays. So it was during that exile that he uh, studied economics at German universities. He became an intimate of Lenin. He and Lenin had a an interesting and contentious uh, relationship because even as a young man, Bukharin was an independent thinker and Lenin did not welcome (laughs) independent thinkers and controlled the purse strings. So this led to a number of conflicts between Lenin and Bukharin uh, even during the exile. But in the, once the revolution occurs and Lenin is, is the leader of the new, uh, the new Soviet government after the, um, 
Kerensky provisional government, we get to the Lenin's in charge. What's Bukharin's role at that point? Lenin immediately put him in charge of Pravda because um, uh, Bukharin was next to Lenin, uh, perhaps the best educated of the Bolsheviks. He was a good writer. Uh, he wrote really the textbook for this new socialist state called the ABC of Communism. Uh, that The draft of that document, by the way, was almost destroyed because even though Bukharin was not sent to the front, as, as were other Bolshevik leaders. Uh, during was, the First World War? Uh, no, this was during the Civil War. Oh, okay. Um, uh, Bukharin uh, was subject to a, a, uh, a bombing attempt on his life, which killed a number of people and almost destroyed the one copy of this uh, manuscript of ABC of Communism. So Pravda was set up by Lenin. Lenin. And for those who who are younger in our audience and don't remember uh, pre-1990, 1989 history, Pravda was the the newspaper of the the Soviet Union, the newspaper. The official newspaper of the Communist Party. Izvesti was the official newspaper of the government. And he also later was the editor of that, correct, for two years? After he was fired from Pravda... Stalin brought him back in what was regarded as a period of thaw and appointed him to be editor of Izvestia. That was in the 30s. In 34. But he was the first, was he the first editor of of Pravda? Uh, Pravda, I believe, was published uh, in Europe as an emigre Uh newspaper, but he was the first editor after the successful October Revolution. So that's an even more influential position than, say, editor of the New York Times, possibly, within that country. He was the official voice of the party. He was in charge of propaganda. Uh, Interestingly, Lenin's second decree uh, was the Red Terror Decree, which set the then secret police called the Cheka uh, against opponents of the regime. Uh, uh, Bukharin was put in charge of uh, expelling uh, intellectuals, which was a an unusual role for someone who was the intellectual yeah. of the Bolshevik government, uh, but. Bukharin was in charge of expelling the great writers, the great scientists. Uh, Kondratiev fell, by the way, in that group. Uh, Kondratiev was scheduled for deportation, but somehow managed to get internal exile, which was one of the punishments. And that cost Kondratiev his life. And Kondratiev was the economist... Famous for cycles in the economy. Correct. Why did it cost him his life? Because he was executed in 1937. Stalin very much disliked Kondratiev. Kondratiev uh, headed what was called the Business Cycle Institute, which published independent data on the economy. And um, he also favored a uh, favored, favored private agriculture. So um, clearly, Kondratiev was on Stalin's enemies list. And the 
the Red Terror that Lenin instituted that Bukharin was responding to was what year, roughly? Uh, immediately, uh, early years of nineteen, uh, early months of nineteen eighteen. Oh, okay. So why? We'll get back to Bukharin in a minute. Why Lenin? Who made up that list of who was going to be deported? You said writers, scientists. Lenin himself. And why did he do that? Uh, Lenin did not want to have any opposition whatsoever, and his first targets were socialist parties with which he had been allied only a few months earlier. So he didn't go after the uh, so-called bourgeois parties, he went after the socialist parties. Yeah. Uh, so he did not want to have any competition, and he felt uh, he would have more competition from the socialist parties than from the so-called bourgeois parties. So from the early days of the revolution, Bukharin is a very influential, important figure. He's, he's at that time, at the level of Trotsky, Lenin, Stalin, uh, Zinoviev, the, the most important, influential people in the Bolshevik movement that leads to revolution and puts the Bolsheviks in power. So when Lenin dies in, what, 22? Uh, it was January 24. 24. He had strokes which incapacitated him for about two years. So when Lenin dies in 24, there's a power struggle that's going to ensue that ultimately uh, Stalin becomes the, what's his title initially? Secretary the, the title did not change. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was simply not understood that this was going to become the most important position. Stalin became, I think, like in 1921 or 22, the general secretary. Yeah, the general secretary. And from that point on, the general secretary was the top position. Sounds like a, doesn't sound like a top position. <laughs> Sounds like a relatively minor position, but Stalin, of course, makes sure that that's not the case. So how does, Stalin begins to consolidate power throughout the 20s. How does Bukharin get on Stalin's bad side? What goes wrong? which is a bad thing to be on Stalin's bad side. Well, um, Bukharin thought that he and Stalin were good friends. Uh, and in fact, um, in my book, I point out that they spent a rather uneasy summer together uh, in Stalin's dacha. The two families were together, and it was during that summer that they began to quarrel over uh, policy. Uh, Stalin and Bukharin were allies uh, in 1925 and 1926 because it was thought that the most likely successor to Lenin would be Trotsky. Bukharin um, disagreed violently with Trotsky's economic and political policies. Uh, Stalin had not revealed his true position at that point. At that time, major decisions were still being made by majority vote of the Politburo, which was around a nine-person committee which really ran uh, the party. Stalin needed Bukharin's votes because Bukharin commanded a block of votes of four or five votes. Uh, Trotsky commanded a block of three or four votes, and so... Uh, Bukharin and um, Stalin got together uh, in a block to expel uh, Trotsky and to expel Trotsky's 
two uh, major allies, Zinoviev and Kamenev. Expel them from the Politburo? I expel them from the Politburo, expel them from the Central Committee, which was the larger body, and then ultimately expel them from the party, which meant for Trotsky exile. So Trotsky never returned to the Soviet Union. First he was sent to Almaty, then Turkey, and then eventually he ended up in Mexico where he was assassinated by an agent of Stalin. Uh, Zinoviev and Kamenev were uh, internally exiled to a remote city called Kaluga, where they remained in exile for a couple of years. And then? Then they were reinstated, and Kamenev is a big part of um, the Bukharan story. So at some point we'll get okay. to the relationship we'll to between that. Kamenev and Bukharan. But the point is, is that in, in the early days of the struggle for power, post-Lenin. Stalin and Bukharin are allies. They push out a couple people, three people who are hostile to him and replace them with toadies, presumably. That is, that was Stalin's strength because as general secretary, he filled all positions, mm -hmm. including uh, Politburo positions. So the minute uh, Kamenev, Zinoviev, and Trotsky were expelled, Stalin had his cronies waiting in the wings. So Molotov was elevated, uh, Orjanikidze was elevated. Uh, so uh, when they were expelled, Stalin uh, was going about building his own majority Correct. in the so they would, So he wouldn't need Bukharin. So in the late 20s, if I remember correctly from the book, uh, Bukharin and Stalin spar over the collectivization of the... Um, of the farms, over the Kulak policy and over the policy of the Ukraine. Is that correct? Yes, I think this is the part of the book that would be most interesting for economists and political scientists because it points out the clear relationship between violence and non-market allocation. Uh, what happened was that um, Stalin did not like the peasantry. Marx had already warned against the peasantry. Marx did, uh, Stalin did not like the peasantry. He thought the peasantry should uh, uh, give what he called tribute <laughs> to the city. In fact, there, uh, Bukharin and Stalin sparred over this term tribute. Uh, but Stalin uh, clearly felt that some kind of tribute was to be paid from the countryside to the city. In the way to uh, get this tribute would be to set the prices of agricultural products very low because in Marx uh, you finance industrialization through some kind of surplus. So they were always considering from where this surplus was to come. Stalin said the surplus must come from agriculture, the peasant must pay for industrialization, and will make them pay by setting the price very low. And uh, Stalin and his cronies went about establishing a monopoly of grain purchases. 
Now any economist will tell you uh, that if you set the price low and it was set even below the cost of production, no one's going to sell. Yeah. Therefore, uh, when the prices were set low, peasants stopped selling. Stalin, therefore, would declare what he called a grain collection crisis. That is, this was a political action of the peasants aimed against Bolshevik power. So it wasn't economic behavior. They weren't just responding to incentives. Yeah, it was not economic behavior. It was uh, anti-Soviet uh, um, activity. His only choice, therefore, uh, was to send the militia the secret police, party volunteers into the countryside and take uh, grain by force. Confiscation. Confiscation. And this is where he and Bukharin parted company because it turns out uh, in the early years after the October Revolution, Bukharin belonged to a group calling themselves left communists. So they were even more ex more extreme than Trotsky. But then Bukharin uh, had a an epiphany at some point, which uh, was the result of observing the success of the new economic policy, which was based really on private agriculture and private trade, that you're going to destroy agriculture, you're going to destroy social cohesion. Uh, if you place this burden on agriculture. So Bukharin uh, argued that we have to have a private agriculture, we have to let the market set prices. In this way, we can avoid force in the countryside. So this is what they were arguing about. Uh, in the Politburo, they were arguing about it in the Central Committee. And what I learned from reading their dialogue, reading the transcripts of these meetings, is that they all understood what the game was about. At one point I thought perhaps they just didn't understand elementary economics. But now I see Stalin and Bukharin understood very well that you have a choice between voluntary exchange through markets and the application of force. And so that is what clearly split the two. And before we get on to the next stage of their struggle, I want to talk about the Kulaks. Uh, five to seven million or so, what's, the, what's our best understanding of how many people died uh, in, in the agricultural community? Uh, it's very hard to say because this is where the statistics are weakest. Um, the official numbers... Um, it's, it's several million. I mean, there were several million deportees. There were high rates of mortality among the deportees. There weren't that many executions during this period. So jail was a punishment of choice at this time, which was 1930 and 1931. Uh, so most of the victims were victims of um, starvation. When, which occurred during this deportation. They were sent into remote areas of Kazakhstan and Siberia with no means of uh, support. And also in the area, in the grain belt itself, there was no food to eat, right? Oh, well, I'm looking at things sort of step by step. Uh, first came collectivization and what was called dekulakization, which meant the deportation 
of all your good farmers uh, out of the main agricultural regions. Uh, this created uh, chaos in agriculture. Uh, there were uh, bad harvests and bad weather, and there's a lot of debate among scholars as to whether it was bad weather or whether it was mistakes or whether well, it was deliberate. Didn't they have 70 years of bad weather between 1917 yes, and 1987? Uh, yes, they did. But this was Every year. This was particularly bad. And here's where you get the um, large numbers of, uh, of, of uh, deaths. It's somewhere, you know, 5 to 10 million people died. Uh, and there's a lot of debate as to whether this was deliberate or not because Stalin wasn't particularly fond of Ukraine, which is where most of the deaths occurred. Uh, my own reading of this is that um, Stalin understood that if you lost that many people, you could actually lose Ukraine. So at one point he said, you know, this is dangerous. We can't lo lose Ukraine. And he tried a little bit to make matters better, uh, but it was much too late. And he also denied uh, those in famine regions sort of the natural equilibration, which is to leave. Yeah. Uh, so roadblocks were set up. Uh, you couldn't get on a train if you were in a famine area. And they caught you and they sent you back and you died. And there, it was terrible, uh, a lot of uh, cannibalism. Uh, Bukharin, who had already lost the political struggle in 1930 and 1931, traveled through Ukraine and saw he had no stomach for this. So he came back and he told Anna's father, who... That's his wife's father. Yeah, who was his best friend. If this is what the revolution brings, we should have had no revolution. So you can see that... Because he'd seen starving children, yeah. he'd seen people dying of yeah. hunger. Which um, brings me to the point about the Bolsheviks, the old Bolsheviks, because one of the prized traits that Stalin and his associates valued was being tough. Know, not having any sympathy, have a strong stomach. Bukharin did not have this strong stomach. Uh, one of his fellow Politburo members said, I fear Bukharin, he's a soft person. And this says a lot about the succession st struggle because Bukharin and his allies fought this battle as soft people. <laughs> it was midgets going against giants, and this brings us to Hayek's point about um, power struggles. Who rises to the top, he yeah. asks, and the road to serfdom. Correct. And this is a great case study of showing that soft-hearted people who play by the rules simply can't win in power struggles in such a system. And it's no mystery why Stalin won and they lost. It, there's a lot of amazing um, stories in the book. By the way, it's it's a very short book, and it's an extremely entertaining and informative read. Um, it's uh, many, many, I would say delightful anecdotes, but they're not so delightful because some of them are very depressing, but they're quite powerful. Uh, there's one point in the book where 
a bunch of Bolsheviks are sitting around talking about what what their what's what's their favorite what's what's a perfect day what's what would be heaven. And one guy says it's reading a book, another it's chasing women, a third it's drinking, and Stalin's is revenge against <laughs> somebody who's done you wrong. And this is early on. Yeah. Should have been a signal to those folks that they were playing with a tense guy. He not only said revenge, but it's more delightful the longer yeah. you wait for it, because if you wait a long time, you enjoy it much more. Yeah. And this is one of... Uh, Stalin's characteristics, uh, you can see that he set things in motion, he was very patient, he was very happy uh, to wait four, five, six years to get his revenge. Uh, and you can see how he very slowly went about things. He would always do things step by step. So he would never kill someone quickly. Uh, he would first embarrass you, then he would disgrace you. Uh, then he would say, well, we need to give this guy a chance to redeem himself. We're all good Bolsheviks. Uh, and then the axe would fall. But then he would say, we need to investigate a little more. Uh, I might need you for um, a show trial uh, before the public. So he's very, very patient. And throughout this, his opponents, particularly his gullible opponents like Bukharin, always felt maybe this will turn out right. Bukharin, to the very end, harbored this hope. We were one-time good friends. Uh, he, surely he's going to spare me. But Stalin was very patient. He thought things through. He never left anything to chance. So Bukharin is an antagonist in his mind, an intellectual antagonist on this policy issue, and you can hear his surprise often that that the debate over some of these issues doesn't go the way it would say in a faculty lounge. Um, that the rules of the game are not those of normal intellectual discourse. He's burdened by the fact that he's an intellectual. He's burdened by the fact that he does harbor uh, what he imagines is a friendship, thoughts of friendship about Stalin. But he gets tangled up in the um, in in what are called the show trials and becomes the centerpiece of one of them. So, talk about uh, what happens what happens to him the slow, painful, and and poignant uh, decline in his access to power. I would um, put it in three stages. The first stage was the political economic struggle. That struggle was lost. Uh, by early 1929. It was, and you can see the loss in uh, the Central Committee plenum, I think of April 1928. Uh, Stalin by this time has tricked Bukharin because he has goaded Bukharin into a terrible mistake. Uh, Bukharin realizes that he's losing uh, the political struggle to Stalin and in a very unwise move meets privately with Kamenev, Trotsky's former ally. He meets with uh, Kamenev uh, in an apartment which is uh, which has listening devices, so Stalin knew that this meeting was taking place. Uh, 
And what happened was that uh, Bukharin really used this as an opportunity to vent. And he revealed to Kamenev um, that there were deep splits over policy because all of these splits had been uh, concealed from the general party by so-called statements of unity. So they would go into these battles. <laughs> Everything was unanimous. Uh, they would go into this, these battles. They would take diametrically opposed positions. And then they would say, okay, uh, we need to form a compromise commission. Bukharin would be one party to it. Molotov would be the other party. Of course, Molotov, who simply following Stalin's orders, would outmaneuver Bukharin. So... Uh, the meeting ends with the so-called unity statement. So the party can be told the Politburo is united or the Central Committee is united. It was extremely important for Stalin to get these statements of unity because he was embarking on very radical policies like collectivization, forced industrialization. Uh, and he, couldn't, he knew he couldn't do so if people thought it's only Stalin. It had to be the whole Politburo. So it was very important for him to get these unity statements, which Bukharin was foolish enough to sign. After signing one of these unity statements, Bukharin met with Kamenev and vented and told him everything. And this was a person who had been expelled from the party. This was a cardinal sin. This was a cardinal sin for which Bukharin could be expelled from the party. Which is bizarre, just on the face of it, because you think, you think you're living a normal life. You're having a, a meeting with a guy who is another very important person and who you've known for forever, and so you're chatting. And yet that became, in the Soviet Union, potentially could lead to a death sentence. That was Stalin's rule. You cannot have private meetings, because <laughs> private meetings mean that there is a faction being formed, and we have a unified party line uh, in which there are no factions. Uh, Bukharin well understood what he was doing and the danger he was in, but he was in a rage at that point, and he made this mistake. Once he made that mistake, he was finished, believe it or not. And that meeting, by the way, uh, was the basis for, the, uh, for his death sentence because the death sentence read that he and the Trotskyites had formed a coalition to assassinate Stalin and virtually everybody else. So uh, there and were... Even though that was not, of course, the purpose of the meeting, the fact that the meeting took place and then testimony by folks who, just thinking they were saving their own lives, said, yes, there was such a conspiracy yeah. and Bukharin was part of it. There were a couple of minor encounters between Bukharin and Kamenev after this, and once Bukharin lost the, the political power struggle, he uh, avoided any contact with anyone like Kamenev or Zinoviev or anyone suspect of being in opposition to Stalin, but good behavior did not save him. So, you know, one stage in this saga is the loss of the political struggle which had occurred by 1929. Then came the phase where Bukharin uh, decided, if I simply behave myself, if I withdraw from political life, I'll be safe. And it was during this period that his rom romance with Anna 
who was 26 years younger than he, began. Uh, there was this lull in 1934 after collectivization had been completed. Uh, the victory of industrialization was declared. Stalin called the so-called Congress of Victors, a meeting of the general meeting of the Communist Party, appointed Bukharin uh, editor of Izviestia, the second most important newspaper. So everyone thought things were going to turn out fine. That's stage two. Stage three begins on December 1, 1934, with the assassination of uh, Kirov, the Leningrad party boss. There's, we will never know whether Stalin had him assassinated or whether the assassin was a jealous husband. Uh, both stories um, can be told convincingly. Once Kirov was, and by the way, Kirov in the Congress of Victors received more, vo more votes for reappointment to the Central Committee than Stalin. So he, he was probably the most popular Bolshevik figure at the time, which would not have sat well with <laughs> Stalin. Once Kirov was assassinated, Stalin had his plan in place already. Within a few minutes, he knew exactly what he was going to do. He went to Leningrad. He interviewed the assassin. The assassin mysteriously died in his cell that evening. The uh, Kirov's guard mysteriously died in an automobile accident a few hours later. And Stalin ordered the head of the NKVD at that time, Yagoda, uh, the murderers of Kirov, you will find the murderers of Kirov among the Trotskyites. If necessary, beat their faces in. That was his order to Yagoda. Yagoda was too slow. The NKVD, NKVD is the secret police. Yeah. Uh, Yagoda was too slow, and uh, Stalin replaced him with Nikolai Yezhov, who was the the so-called loyal executioner who carried out the uh, Great Terror. Uh, so with the execution of Kirov begins this third phase, which I would call the struggle for physical survival, because up until that point, there was a ban on execution of top-level Bolsheviks. That ban was broken in the first Moscow show trial of August 1936, uh, which uh, imposed death sentences on Zinoviev, Kamenev, and I think 14 others. And Bukharin at this point, although scared, he ends up twisting in the wind over the next two years, uh, is put on trial for planning the murder of, ultimately, for planning the murder of Stalin, which of course was a, a trumped-up charge. But many, many people testified that that this was true, that he had, he had planned such a thing. These testimonies were, were generated by torture uh, by the NKVD, right? And um, Bukharin finds himself in this horrible web. It's a very Kafkaesque, unbearable thing almost to read about because he can't understand how these lies are, are being propagated about him. But, of course, he's up against a ruthless man. And um, 
He uh, and many, many people beside him. We'll come to his ultimate statement in a minute. But many people bes- beside him who were put in these trials confessed guilty, guilty, guilty. They all confessed their own guilt. They all uh, corroborated the, the false testimony of the people who accused them, and they did so out of a combination of, of fear, uh, torture, and and sometimes loyalty to the to the revolution. Correct. Whether the third um, case applies, I don't know. Uh, many interpreted Bukharin's own confession as a sign of loyalty, last sign of loyalty to the party. I think my book demonstrates that was not the case. Because his actual confession, as you point out, was edited by Stalin. So Correct. the public version of it, one of the incredible parts of the book is what Bukharin really said at his trial, which was which was a a defense, actually, was not what the world got to see. Yeah, he reserved it uh, till his so-called final statement. That's when he retracted uh, his confession. Uh, In the book, and if you go to the microfilms here, you can find... Here being at the uh, Hoover Institution, uh, at the archives. archives. You can find the transcripts of the um, interrogations. this was a system that wrote everything down, surprisingly, unlike the Nazis. So uh, all of the um, uh, interrogations were transcribed. You can read the transcriptions so you can see how the interrogation was uh, carried out. And uh, quite often you'll see a resistance. Now, I'm not going to confess, and then things kind of shut down for a little bit, and then the transcript begins again, and then the confession comes. So the suspicion is they've been beaten, uh, they've been told their wife is going to be shot, their son's going to be shot. Purportedly, Kamenev confessed because he was promised that his son could live, but the son was also executed. Two sons were executed, as I recall, and one was a teenager. So there were various ways to get you to uh, confess. Only two of the major figures who confessed were not given death sentences, and they both testified against uh, Bukharin, but uh, their sentence was something like 10 years in the gulag. In the gulag, both of them fell victim to um, uh, an assassination by another convict. So let's move to the, to the love story part of this book, which is really uh, also quite extraordinary. I mean, just the, I, I really, I very much enjoyed, again, in a, in a depressing way, the struggle between Bukharin and, and Stalin, particularly Bukharin's uh, naivete almost uh, in what he was going up against. You can read it you, in a number of places. You quote the transcripts. You can read his shock and and surprise at the at the lies that are being told about him, and just presumes that the, he'll he'll of course uh, be exonerated. And in particular, there's a particularly uh, poignant part where uh, two people are about to be executed. I think it's Kamenev and Zinoviev, right? And he is he has the right under Soviet law to confront them. He has the right to a confrontation. They've testified against him. Mm-hmm. And he's hurrying back from somewhere uh, in the east, and his plane is a couple hours late, and Stalin kills him. 
And he says, well, I'm ready for my confrontation. I said, well, you missed it. But what? You can't believe it that you couldn't wait a couple hours to kill these people? I mean, yeah. what's, the big, what's the rush? Yeah. But Stalin, while patient in some situations, was not so patient when it served his purposes. So, Yeah, that's a rather dramatic story of his mad dash back from Uzbekistan. Uh, Stalin actually uh, gave him a two-month vacation, which was conveniently timed, <laughs> conveniently timed uh, to be at the same time as the communist Zinoviev trial. And not only was it a vacation, uh, Bukharin was an alpinist, so he disappeared into the wilds and was supposed cell phone to, didn't get good and there coverage. Was no no yeah. cell phone, and uh, it was only by chance that he resurfaced because uh, his traveling companion uh, fell ill. So he re resurfaced much too early. He resurfaced on the day the death sentences were announced. And at that moment, he understood that he was not going to survive. Because um, if they're going to go, they're going to go. And they're going to testify they, against uh, They've already testified against me. Uh, the newspaper read that uh, uh, Yezhov is beginning the investigation. So he knew at that point he was done for. Anna, his young wife, she was then 22, they had an infant son, also read in the papers. And she went into a deep shock. So uh, it was on that day, something like August 21, 1936, that they realized that they had little chance of survival. So the, the love story is quite amazing, and, and it... And it gets interwoven with the events of his uh, political and physical challenges. He meets his wife. It's his third wife. He has two wives. His third wife is Anna Lorena, who he meets when she is four. He is not four. They're, they weren't day school, uh, daycare playmates. Uh, he was 30. Uh, so he was 26 years yeah. older than her. And he... As you said, her father was his best friend. That he watches this girl grow up in in the f the house of his friend, and when she turns sixteen, uh, he starts to court her in some sense, or at least there's some sort of romantic uh, relationship between them. And uh, they marry at twenty, uh, when she's twenty and he's forty six. One of my favorite moments in the book is when she's probably very uneasy about or uncertain at the age of 16, 18, 19, whether she should continue to be involved with this man much older than, her, than herself, and she is. And she asks her father for advice. Her father's on his deathbed, and he says, 10 years with Bukharin is uh, more interesting than a lifetime with any other man. Fortunately, she doesn't get 10 years. She gets three, right? So she marries him when she's 20. Within two years of their marriage, they've had a child, and... Um, uh, he's arrested, tried, and executed. What happens to her? Well, what happened to her is what happened to all the other wives and sons, and in some cases, daughters. Uh, she was declared a chassir, which is an abbreviation for a member of a family of a traitor of the fatherland. She was first sent into exile, then she was sentenced to the gulag for 10 years. The sentence was for 10 years. And she then was moved from camp to camp, always camps for chasseurs. Uh, her story alone is worth uh, telling. Um, 
Your father was an influential member of the Bolshevik Very influential, movement. very close to Lenin. She was politically very astute. She followed this uh, power struggle uh, closely. Uh, she was quite depressed when Bukharin lost the power struggle. She tried to comfort him again. This they weren't married. She no, was they just, weren't. She yeah. was just. He was an older friend of her father. He was an older friend of the father, and um, the romance begins in the Crimea, to which he re to to where he retreats after his political defeat. She's sixteen. He's there recovering from a lung infection. She's beautiful too, by the She's way. She's very beautiful woman, um, which was not did not go unnoticed by Stalin, because when they married, uh, and th this may explain why she actually lived, because uh, I have some notion that Stalin perhaps was in love with her as well. Stalin had known her from this young age as well, and at one point, um, after she's in the gulag, she's called back to Moscow, uh, by Beria, who is now the head of the NKVD, who hopes that she can incriminate uh, Litvinov, who was the foreign minister. Uh, and so she meets with uh, Beria, who, by the way, uh, was a child molester, uh, and very much like girls in, their, in ages 13, 14, 15. And so he had actually met Anna at that time, and her father was very protective of her. Uh, but she comes back and meets Beria, and Beria more or less tells her, if the master wanted you dead, you'd be dead. So I have the feeling that Stalin rarely had any emotions whatsoever, but he may have had uh, some kind of emotion for her. Yeah, we didn't talk about this, but the, uh, the incredible letters that Bukharin sent to, to, to Stalin at one point, just hoping that he could at least take poison instead of being shot. Uh, and you can just imagine Stalin's uh, actually getting pleasure from not granting it. And here you're telling me now that he may have had one little soft spot, soft spot for uh, Anna Lorena to at least let her live. Um, so she spends ultimately eight years in the gulag. She gets... Ten. I thought she, she spends all ten? I think, yeah. But then another ten in exile because when you complete your term, you're not allowed to leave the immediate area. So she had to remain another 10 years in Siberia. And what happens to her then? She remarries. Uh, she meets uh, her second husband in the gulag. They have two children. The children are still alive. And uh, we've talked to them a little bit about their experiences. Um, she lost the infant son. When she was arrested, he went into orphanages. This is Bukharin's biological that, son. Yeah. Um, it was very common that they would be put in an NKVD orphanage, which is where he went. Uh, after Khrushchev's... Did you say an NKVD orphanage? Yeah, they ran the orphanages. What was that like? Uh, not very good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was also a re-education program, which you went through. Well, because some of these kids were were not infants, were not a one-year-old or two-year-old. They were 12 and 14. And yeah. But she last saw him, I think, when he was um, less than a year. Um, she was able to contact him after Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin in 1956. 
And at this point, how old is she? She was born when? Uh, she, well, she would have been 20 in, uh, in 1934, so this had been 1956. You have to do, she'd been mid-30s, I guess. 42, no, 42. 42 or something. She had two children. Um, she was able to locate Yuri, their son, who's now a grown man, uh, who's still living, by the way, in Moscow. He became a fairly well-known painter. Uh, and he ag agrees to travel to Siberia to meet her. She's living in this small village. So he's 21. He's 20, so, 21. And she's 42. Yeah. And, and they haven't seen each other for 20 years since he was an infant. Yeah. And um, he doesn't know who his father is. This has been kept from him. And Unbelievable. The main purpose of his visit, uh, well, two purposes, one to meet his mother. The second was to find out who his father was. And... To that point, uh, she'd been reluctant to tell him because it was dangerous before Khrushchev's um, denunciation. And so it's quite a poignant story how she tells him that his father was Bukharin. He actually had, he actually had a, a intimation that his father was Bukharin because she had told him he was among the top five uh, Bolshevik uh, leaders. So They narrowed um, it down. That narrowed it down, and um, so he he came up with the name of Bukharin immediately. Thereafter, um, Anna was able to return to Moscow. The exile period ended, and she and Yuri uh, worked um, uh, tirelessly for uh, Bukharin's rehabilitation. On the eve of his arrest he had her memorize what he called his last political testament. Or, yeah, his, not last political testament, but his political testament, which was to be delivered by her to a future generation of party leaders. Uh, both... Never wrote it down, because he no, knew no, that would be dangerous. He knew that it could not be written down, so she had to memorize it. And every day in the gulag, she would begin her day reciting it to herself. Uh... It was his opinion that um, this experiment went wrong simply because the wrong people got in, in, into power. And so he was counting on the fact that after he was dead and gone, after Stalin was dead and gone, there would be a new generation of leaders uh, who would um, put things right. And that was his dying wish, that uh, he be reinstated with the... Uh, as a member of the party because he had been expelled. Uh, there was a process called rehabilitation. So many of Stalin's victims went through this rehabilitation. So Anna contacted Khrushchev. There was some glimmer of hope, but then Khrushchev uh, 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 was replaced by uh, Brezhnev, and then there was this long period of Brezhnev, Chernyanka, and Andropov, where no one was paying any attention to her. And finally um, came Gorbachev, and I spent a lot of time in Russia during Gorbachev's uh, early years. And at that point, Gorbachev was looking for some alternate system. And the only socialist system <laughs> alternative that he thought existed was the one that Bukharin had proposed. So there was this Bukharin boom, where Bukharin had the answers. If it only had been Bukharin, we'd be okay. So this was the ideal time for her to get this rehabilitation. And 
so Gorbachev ordered his functionaries to rehabilitate Bukharin, which occurred in 1988. So in 1988, he's pardoned, correct? Right. 50 years after his death and execution exactly. and conviction. Yeah. Um, but incredibly, that is not the last chapter. So the last chapter is four years later, sort of the last chapter, in one of the great um, postal service stories of all time. And we know that the post office doesn't work as well as it might under a private system, but this kind of sets the... Actually, I can't joke about it. It's too, it's too sad a story. So uh, Buharin, on his deathbed, before he's executed, not his deathbed, but before his execution, writes a farewell letter to his wife in 1938. She gets it uh, delivered in 1992, uh, a mere 54 years later. And um, what does he say in there? He says two things, and the second thing that he says is remarkable. Um, and this is one reason why Bukharin is called the last Bolshevik, because it shows that he remained a true believer. Uh, and at the time he wrote this letter, uh, there were very few true believers left. But just to read a few lines, it begins, as you might expect, um, uh, Dear sweet Anushka, my darling, I write to you on the eve of my trial with a special purpose which I emphasize three times over, no matter what you read, no matter what you hear, no matter how horrible these things may be, no matter what might be said about me or what I might say, endure everything courageously and calmly. Pre prepare the family, help all of them. I fear for you and the others, but most about you. Now comes what I regard as the remarkable part. Don't feel malice about anything. Remember that the great cause of the USSR lives on, and this is the most important thing. Personal fates are transitory and wretched by comparison. A great ordeal awaits you, and he was correct on that. I beg you, my dearest, muster all your strength, tighten all the strings of your heart, but don't allow them to break. Goodbye, my darling, your Kolka. January 15, 1938. So on the one hand, he's saying goodbye. On the other, he's saying don't lose faith. Yeah, in the great, in the great experiment of the new Soviet man to be created, the great society that he was part of creating. Which brings us, we're almost out of time, it brings us to the, the question, as you say, some people say, well, they just had the wrong people. It could have been a more humane... Hard to imagine being less humane. Could have been a more humane revolution. What do you think? Is it imaginable? Well, economists and historians have difficulty dealing with this issue because historians like to look at special circumstances, unique events, whereas we like to uh, look at models and regularities. Uh, so what I would say is now, to some extent, the historians are right. Uh, if Stalin had had heart disease, if uh, uh, an assassin had gunned him down, things might have been different. Uh, Bukharin might have won. At one point, Bukharin had very powerful allies. Bukharin did not have a sense for power, but he could have formed a coalition uh, which could have run the country. Uh, if 
Bukharin had prevailed, which I think unlikely, um, what would have happened, in my view, would have been a rather quick move uh, to a social democracy, uh, multi-party systems, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think, however, it, it unlikely that a person like Bukharin would win. If Stalin had had the heart attack or been assassinated, then the next worst person would have been standing in line. Zinoviev himself was a pretty terrible guy. There were all kinds of uh, near Stalins out there, and uh, as this story tells you, uh, they're the ones with the ammunition in these power struggles. It's not the Bukharins. So, what's next for you? What's your next book on? This book, I assume, again, I want to emphasize, the book is, it's 166 pages. It is a, um, a rather uh, moving and extraordinary introduction to an era of history that many people don't remember anymore and should. It's extremely important in my mind, which is why we're having this conversation. Um, I'm curious how many hours you spent reading that microfilm, and then, then tell us what you're going to do next, what you're working on. I've, I've been working in the archives, um, Soviet archives, for about, I'd say, a decade now. But um, my first work was really on economics, and it went from economics to terror and repression. And I wrote a book on uh, uh, Stalin's repression called uh, Terror by Quota. Uh, I then... Uh, decided that if you really want to understand how this system worked, you had to look at it at a personal level. And the story of uh, Anna Nikolai was ideal. It was an ideal vehicle for this. The next story I'd like to tell will also not be a story of economics, but uh, makes the point that uh, uh, it, it describes what it was like to live through this period of time. Uh, and I want to make the point that the victims of Stalin's terror were not Bolshevik party officials, but very ordinary people. If you look at the statistics on Stalin's victims, which they ceased publishing around 1934, they were all workers and peasants. Uh, very few had education uh, beyond elementary education. That's the reason they stopped publishing uh, the figures, because these were not enemies of the people. These were ordinary people. And I think that's the remarkable thing about this great terror, that it struck very ordinary people who could not understand why they had been selected. Uh, so I'm looking around for you know, eight or ten stories of families who went through this experience. I'm trying to get good memoirs of survivors, and so on. Uh, this is going to be a very time-consuming project, so I don't know how long it'll take, but I think it'll uh, be an enlightening story. Yeah, it's, just, it's incredibly important. It's, it's, um, it's easy to forget. Um, for some reason today, as I was thinking about preparing for this podcast, I remember a, a time that I got out of my car not my car, I was being, taking a taxi to the airport. And I got to the airport and I opened my car door and a car coming by at high speed clipped just a tiny piece of the door. 
and um, scratched the paint on that car that went by. Didn't hurt the taxi cab. It was a police car. The policeman screeched to a halt, came back, and he started uh, screaming at the taxi driver. The taxi driver had nothing to do with it. It was my, my fault, I guess. I don't know. I think it was probably the policeman's fault. He's probably going 50 in a drop-off zone for a parking uh, air, at the airport. But I was afraid, and uh, the taxi driver was very afraid, obviously. He, the policeman wasn't yelling at me. He was yelling at the taxi driver, and I, I tried to stand up for the taxi driver, and the policeman started yelling at me, and he had a gun, and I didn't. And I think, you know, in America, we're, pr we're pretty lucky. Uh, power of the state is historically fairly limited most of the time. There's a free press. Uh, the abuse of power usually and often will get revealed. Not always. Um, a friend of mine who often works in police brutality cases, you know, police departments tend to naturally pull together and try to protect their own. That's natural. But um, most of us in America, thank God, don't have much experience being terrorized by the state. The idea that that would be standard practice that the state, that the man with the gun who could pull you over for anything he felt like and you had no, no recourse and the trials would occur where people would make up things about you because they wanted you to be hurt or didn't want to save themselves is just an unimaginable episode in human history. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's all too common and it's really important uh, that we remember it. Russ, I can't top that. Well, it's been uh, it's been uh, great having you on Econ Talk, and um, look forward to the next book. We'll talk in about a year and a half. Great. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.